and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I sprayed me in my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today and share our guest. But before we get to her, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. We believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. So we're transforming how companies, executives, athletes, and sports teams value these skills by providing one-on-one coaching and interactive workshop experiences. And at the end of the day, it's our hope that our society will start calling them what they are strong skills. If you're interested in learning more about our work or myself, feel free to visit our website at strongskills.co. Additionally, one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. Shift your mind comes from the teachings of my book, which came out last October. And if you enjoy today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase the book. You can also listen to the audiobook on Audible. You can listen to my voice and hear me more in your ears if you so desire. So thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of the previous conversations that we've had with these intentional performers, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to get these incredible people's message out into the world. Now to today's guest. Nicole Lynn Lewis is the founder and chief executive officer of Generation Hope, which is a nonprofit organization that surrounds motivated teen parents and their children with the mentors, emotional support, and financial resources that they need to thrive in college and in kindergarten thereby driving a two-generation solution to poverty. And Nicole's been there. She's going to talk about being homeless. She's going to talk about what it was like for herself to be a teen mother and what it was like to put herself through college at William & Mary with her three-month-old daughter in tow. Today, 
Nicole works every single day to change the statistic that less than 2% of teen mothers will earn their degrees before age 30. Nicole is an impressive, inspirational woman. She's received various awards, including being honored as a CNN hero and the National Grand Prize winner of the Rosalind S. Jaffe Award, and has been featured on major news outlets, including Good Morning America, CNN, NBC Nightly News, and the Washington Post. Most recently, she was honored with the inaugural Black Voices for Black Justice Award, which recognizes incredible leaders who have been on the front lines working to dismantle the deep-rooted racist systems that have plagued our country for centuries. She's also a nationally known author and speaker, and I'm really excited to share with you that her next book, which is highly anticipated and called Pregnant Girl, will be released this May. So, without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Nicole Lynn Lewis. Nicole, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where I wanted to start with you is to take us to the day that you found out you got into college or more specifically, if you got into a dream college or what that was like for you when you got your acceptance letter. Yeah. So um, I was obviously senior year of high school and I, um, I had applied to probably five or six schools. Um, and the one school that I was really excited about going to was university of Maryland. Actually, I, was uh, I had a dream to be like a journalist and um, had learned in the course of writing for our regional newspaper in Virginia and in Virginia Beach, that's where we lived at the time, that Maryland had this really great journalism program. And uh, I applied to five or six different schools, but I really knew that I was gonna go to Maryland. (laughs) That was like uh, the plan and honestly, it was kind of interesting because I had never visited the campus. Um, like looking back, I'm like, why did I kind of zone in on that? But uh, but I was really excited about pursuing a journalism career and felt like Maryland, you know, would be kind of my ticket to get there. Um, so it was that was my school. We're gonna come back to the day that you either got accepted or rejected to Maryland. But why journalism? Why was that of interest to you? I have always loved writing. Um, Ever since I was a little girl, I would write constantly poems, stories. My mom would, you know, buy me those uh, notebooks, like the, you know, kind of college ruled spiral notebooks and that one subject. And I would fill those up, like tons of them with like stories and all sorts of different kinds of writing. And it just is something I've always loved. And uh, I had my first article published at 11 years old. So like I was all in on journalism. And then when I got to high school, I was writing for our newspaper at the school, but I was also writing for the Virginian pilot um, as a student correspondent. So it just was something that I had a real passion for and, and felt like this was the career that I wanted to pursue. Were any, was anybody in the family a writer? Where do you think that bug came from? You said mom got you the, the journalist and she recognized it, but any idea where it came from? Nobody in my family was a writer, but my mom was a, um, or is a, an artist. And um, even though they're different, I think in the same way, I learned early on just like how to express yourself creatively. And, um, and my mom did it with a paintbrush and I did it with a pen or a pencil. And that, that was something my mom and dad, you know, both really encouraged. They saw like a talent in me and really fostered that over the years. 
And what did dad do for a living? My dad worked in education. He um, worked in distance education. Um, when I was in high school, he was um, working at George Washington University and uh, helping with their distance learning program. Um, so education is in my blood. My mom, in addition to her own, um, doing her own artwork and selling her pieces, she was also an art teacher. So um, education was, you know, a big thing in our house. So I think I read that going to college wasn't a matter of if you would go, it's a matter of where you, where you would go. So, so take me again to that, that moment where you get the envelope from University of Maryland. I think I did half of Maryland's application process. <laughs> And then uh, I applied early decision at Syracuse and oh, I, got, okay. I got in. I could tell the story about my mom getting the envelope. I was out, you know, with some friends at our local mall and she calls. I think I had a car phone at the time. I don't remember. But she said, Brian, come home. You got an envelope from Syracuse. And it's a big letter. It's a big envelope. <laughs> and later on, later on, she told me that she actually held the envelope up to the light and saw that it she was cheated. She cheated. <laughs> my mom was not one of those crazy moms, like overbearing when it came to right. or anything, but I think she couldn't help herself. So I remember opening that up and being excited. And, and then I didn't have to fill out the rest of the application at Maryland, which probably was going to reject me anyway. So it, it, it <laughs> me from, I from doubt that, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so walk us through either getting the envelope from Maryland, or if you have any memories of getting into college and what that was like for you. You know, um, so honestly, I don't remember the moment. I know I got into Maryland. I don't remember the moment because that moment was so overshadowed by finding out I was pregnant, which I think happened shortly thereafter. But the, I will tell you the moment I, so I'm sort of skipping ahead, but the moment I got into William and Mary is probably the better story because that was, um, much more emotional and um, much more unlikely uh, than when I was in high school, kind of waiting for the Maryland letter. So before you get to William and Mary, let's go to pregnant. Um, yeah. So when you find out you're pregnant, what was the response and reaction to that? Yeah, I was devastated. Um, so personally just felt like I had um, jeopardized everything that really my parents, my family, um, had been working towards in terms of my future and, and college was always this logical next step given, you know, after high school. And so to find out that I was pregnant felt like I had, you know, really just thrown all of that away. And, um, and my parents were devastated. Um, and uh, my support system, like my friends at school, uh, I really, it took a huge blow to my friendships um, and I felt really isolated and alone, um, especially because I, I had decided to keep uh, the pregnancy and, um, and, and that was hard for like some of my friends to kind of understand and kind of work through. Um, I had some teachers at school that were uh, really supportive and some administrators. Um, but then I also had some teachers who were not supportive and knew that I was pregnant and, and it became really hard for me, um, academically, which was really kind of weird because I'd always been this strong student, you know, honor roll student and to go from that to, to then having my grades suffer, uh, because of the pregnancy also kind of threw me into a different world. Um, so it took a, it was a huge blow to my 
my friends, my family, um, and the the teachers and faculty that at one point were really big cheerleaders for me. As you're talking, I'm thinking about your books coming out soon. It's called yeah. Pre- Pregnant Girl, like very clear title. <laughs> how did it impact your identity as a high school student? I think you're 17 years old at the time. It sounds like your identity before that was well, you're an amazing writer. You're already getting some attention for your writing. You're applying and getting into schools. Just talk about the identity and, and maybe some of the labels or the stigmas that came with being maybe the pregnant girl in your town and in your school. Yeah. Um, and that's really what that title is about, is how we label people, right? And how um, and what that does to someone in terms of how they look at themselves and how they perceive them, themselves. It was uh, immediately, it was almost like when I was watching the Two Pink Lines show up, I immediately felt like uh, I had, like I was a failure. Like uh, it didn't matter you know, how smart I was. It didn't matter what kind of um, prep I had done to go to college or that I had been accepted into these different schools. I instantly knew that I was now on this other side. Like I was now a problem. I was now, um, uh, you know, as I said, just just people would look at me totally different than, than I had, had looked at myself prior to that and how people, had kind of perceived me. And um, and that was instant. Like I knew it in that instant of seeing the positive pregnancy test. And, um, and it called into question like everything that I had planned. You know, could I go to college now? Could I be successful? Would I be able to even take care of this baby? Um, all of those things like were rushing through my mind and it was hard to see a path forward. Um, you know, so in terms of identity, definitely I felt it. Um, very instantaneously. I think that's wrapped up in, in with all of the ways that we uh, treat young people who find themselves in this situation. I knew the narrative. I knew the way that we talk about teen parents and teen pregnancy. And so when I was in those shoes, all of those things really came rushing at me at one time. And what emotion would you say or emotions would you use to label what that experience was like for you? Um. That's a really good question. Um, scared, I would say really scared of the future um, and scared of facing the future without my support system, which I knew was gonna be really decimated by the pregnancy, um, alone, um, you know, just really feeling lonely in that moment. And my, my boyfriend, was standing next to me when we saw the pregnancy test, but it's interesting because I felt like it was only happening to me, <laughs> you know? And I think um, because really when you experience a teen pregnancy, it's the mom, it's the mother who's carrying that child who um, I have to talk about it being a scarlet letter. You can't hide it. You can't uh, pretend that you're not pregnant. Although many young women do um, try to do that. Um, so I felt very lonely, very scared, um, and, um, disappointed, like disappointed in myself, disappointed in, um, you know, uh, in my situation. You mentioned your boyfriend was there. What was his reaction? You know, he was, um, less devastated. Um, 
I talk about this a lot in the book. He had a different upbringing than me. He um, had really was a strong football player. He was a star football player, um, but academically was not um, uh, strong. And college was not necessarily a given. It was almost like the NFL was a given. And, and you know, college was one of those things you check along the way. Um, and both of his parents were deceased. Um, he was really probably, I wouldn't have been able to name it at the time, but was lonely, I think in a way. And so a, a baby provided something um, more um, consistent for him um, in a time that was really chaotic. And I also talk about in the book, just as a young black man, um, really feeling the need to be, to be tethered to something, to be connected to something. Um, and that I think showed up differently. So for him, it wasn't as devastating to find out that, you know, we were going to be parents, um, but very different from, from how I felt in that moment. And how about your parents? My parents were um, uh, shocked, um, really disappointed, um, very devastated. Uh, by the time I didn't tell my parents right away uh, because I was still processing it. I was, not excited about sharing that news. Um, when I did share it, uh, I talk about in the book, um, telling my mom and I had, you know, had some time to really think about it myself. Like by the time I told my mom, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go to college. I had no clue how <laughs> I didn't have a plan, but I was committed to going to college. And so when I told her, I said, don't worry, you know, I'm going to go to college. And, um, and she was just like, you don't get it. You know, like, this is going to be really hard. Um, and we just didn't know anybody who got pregnant and went to college. Like that wasn't something that happened with the, the girls in my school who experienced the pregnancy when my mom was growing up, you know, if a girl got pregnant, you know, she was, uh, she went somewhere else, had the baby disappeared and came back and there was no baby with her, you know, that kind of thing. So um, for both of us, I think it was, it was something that sounded good, but was hard to actually um, visualize, like, how is that actually going to happen? You mentioned from the time you find out you're pregnant to the time you tell your parents, you also are telling them that I'm also going to college. Mm -hmm. Who else influenced you or impacted you to help you come to that decision? Or was that just something you decided on your own? It was really something I decided on my own. I think after the initial like gut punch of finding out I was pregnant, I immediately went into um, what's next mode. You know, how do I move forward? And I knew I needed a job um, and I knew that I wanted to go to college. I think I knew even then that education was the best way for me to actually provide for her. Um, and so it was, um, it was really about how do I move into this solution kind of place and, and kind of strategizing. And so I really did that on my own. Um, again, I don't, I didn't have like a really good plan <laughs> for those goals. I just kind of latched onto those goals. And then it was important for me that when I did share the news that I shared it with some sort of movement forward. Like, you know, I didn't want to just share that I was pregnant. I also want to share, and this is, this is what I'm going to do. You know, I thought that was important to me. And 
you end up going to William and Mary. Why do you go to William and Mary instead of Maryland? So um, a couple reasons. Um, well, one, my sister went to William and Mary. So when I found out I was pregnant, um, she was in grad school, but she had already graduated from William and Mary. So I knew about William and Mary um, through her experience. I'd been to the campus a couple times. Um, and then my my boyfriend, my daughter's father, was um, he had a job at a shipyard um, in Newport News, and so uh, it was you know just and, and I wasn't living with my parents. I, I was on my own with him, and so just in terms of geography, it was a lot more realistic that if we were living in Newport News, that I could go to Williamsburg and go to school um, than it was for me to go to Maryland. So that Maryland quickly took a backseat um, once I found out I was pregnant. And for those that are listening to this that have never even heard of William and Mary. Yeah. Um, it's Shame very, on you. <laughs> yeah. It's a very, you're actually not the first, what is it, a tribe? Do they change the name? Yeah, I think it's probably, it, I think they still use tribe, but I think they're, they're trying to move away from that. Yeah. So you're not the first William and Mary graduate we've had on the podcast. So there's oh, that, cool. but uh, explain to people a little bit what that, places like I think it's a different environment than something like University of Maryland for example so paint the picture of what William and Mary is like and then paint the picture for us I know when you started school there you had a three-month-old in tow um, so here you are coming to this school and you are also a a new mother so what was that experience like and paint the picture for us so that we can really see what that experience was like for you yeah so William and Mary is um, one of the oldest colleges in the country. Um, the Wren building, which is kind of the centerpiece of William and Mary's campus is the oldest still standing college building in the US. Um, so um, it has educated college presidents, um, it has educated, you know, um, entrepreneurs, FBI directors, like, you know, it has a long history. Um, it is a very prestigious school is often called a public Ivy League. Uh, it's a smaller school than University of Maryland and um, it is predominantly white. It's a predominantly white school. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, um, well, I'll tell you, I'll circle back to the story of how I found out I got into William & Mary because that, that um, paints a picture, I think, or sets up kind of my first day there. But when I, um, I deferred I had actually applied to William & Mary as a senior um, in high school before I found out I was pregnant. Um, and I, when I found out I was pregnant, um, deferred my acceptance. And um, because I kind of had a sense that I would probably be in the Tidewater area uh, because of the pregnancy. And so I had to reopen my application um, to say, now I'd like to you know, attend William & Mary. And having to do that required me to, you know, write an essay about kind of what I, what had I been up to, <laughs> you know, why had I deferred my, my, um, my admittance? And, you know, I think they're used to people saying, well, I had a gap year and I wanted to travel and uh, lots of different things. And that was not my story. I was, you know, in a really tumultuous relationship with my daughter's father. I, we were homeless for periods of time. I was pregnant. Um, nothing about my life said college. De definitely didn't say college of William and Mary. Hey, Nicole, I just want to interject. You were homeless. Mm -hmm. Why weren't you all, you said you moved in with him. Why not just stay at, at your parents' house and 
Um, walk me through just what went into that. Yeah. So my parents, um, I talk about this in the book too. We were, you know, we had a stable middle-class kind of, um, experience, but emotionally, um, my, my household and my childhood was really turbulent. And so, um, lots of fighting with my parents growing up. Um, and so when I found out I was pregnant, it was almost like, um, you know, throwing a crisis on top of a crisis and it just exploded. And I ended up leaving my parents' house, um, and, uh, going with my boyfriend and, really, I mentioned he didn't have a lot of, you know, support either. He had lost both of his parents by this time. Um, so he was staying with family members. Um, and it was a lot to ask them for me to move in, you know, with them. So we were, there were times where we were living outside, out of his car. Um, we would sleep in the high school parking lot in his car. Uh, and this is when you're, you're pregnant. So and you when I'm pregnant. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, couch surfing, those kinds of things. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, and that went on for a long time. We would find a place to stay. And then the situation, you know, for one reason or another wouldn't work out. We'd have to go and live somewhere else. And um, and so I, I never, I didn't have throughout my pregnancy, a real stable living situation. And was um, your older sister, was she help? Was she supportive of you? Who else was sort of, who had your back during this time? Yeah, um, it was a really lonely time. I didn't have um, a lot of support. My sister um, was um, supportive of me wanting to go to school, but not necessarily supportive of me um, living with my boy, you know, being with my boyfriend. Um, my parents and I, you know, the pregnancy had really, uh, you know, impacted our relationship. So my mom, we talked on the phone every now and then, but nothing super consistent. Um, so it was really, I was really isolated. Um, and probably my boyfriend was the only person who I talked to on a regular basis. And I think you mentioned your grades slipped and you start having all these challenges at school as well. So that that's senior year for you when most people are, are maybe getting on cruise control a little bit senior year, it was tumultuous is really what, what you're painting. Yeah, definitely tumultuous. I was um, in jeopardy of not graduating because I had so many absences. Um, and that was really due to sometimes we wouldn't have transportation to get to school, him and I. Um, very, all of this, I should say, is really common um, for teen moms. Um, the absences, the uh, uh, challenges with housing. I didn't know it at the time that my situation, unfortunately, was was in line or aligned with what was happening with with teen mothers or what often happens with teen mothers. But um, but yeah, I was experiencing many of the things that the young people that I work with now experience. All right. So let, now let's fast forward to the William and Mary uh, decision to go there, and and you 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 said that was very vivid for you. So so why was that? Yeah, so I found out, I got my acceptance letter. Um, I had to have it mailed to my parents' house. Um, I was living day to day in a Motel 6 when I got my acceptance letter to William & Mary. And I, my mother called me um, and I'm 
you know, big and pregnant at this point. Um, my mom calls me and, um, and tells me the news that they had accepted my application. And I remember dropping the phone just because I was in shock and also overwhelmed with emotion because I really did not think um, that they were going to accept my deferment or accept my reapplication. And um, I also like, you know, sitting in a Motel 6 pregnant, um, I think we were eating like Pop-Tarts to kind of sustain ourselves throughout the day. Nothing, again, there was no indication that I should have been going to William and Mary in that situation. And so um, it was complete kind of disbelief and really just being overwhelmed. And then what's it like for you being on campus with a three-month-old? Um, yeah, so my my freshman year, I was commuting from Newport News. By the time that I started school, we had gotten a, an apartment. And, uh, and so I was, uh, my first day on campus, I remember being like, I don't belong here, you know, just surrounded by so many students who had a ton of resources and support and family support. Um, they didn't have parenting responsibilities, um, you know, just in a very different place than I was at that time. Um, and just feeling really intimidated by, by what William and Mary was and also by uh, my situation and wondering, was I actually gonna be able to do this? You know, I think I, I just was really committed to um, putting one foot in front of the other and just do, taking it one step at a time and doing my best and, and seeing if I was actually gonna get through it. What was it like for you? It was, um, it was tough. It was really tough. My, my freshman year, um, of course, I'm adjusting to being a new mom at the same time as being a, a college student. Um, I was still nursing uh, my daughter. Um, I was uh, waking up really early. I would drive 150 miles uh, total um, each day I was on campus to drop her off uh, with her aunt who would watch her for me and then um, to drive all the way back up to William and Mary. Um, a lot of driving. Um, I would uh, have to pump in between classes <laughs> um, and try to find a place to do that. And, and back then there were not um, nursing kind of lactation rooms like there are now and certainly not for students. Um, uh, the days were really long. And when I got home with her, I had to devote you know, all of my attention to her, making sure that she had what she needed and getting her fed and getting her bathed and putting her in the bed. So I wouldn't start my studying um, until well into the night. And so I would study for hours at night. Um, I was an English major, so that meant a ton of reading. Uh, and I would read at night and work on my essays and papers. Um, and then in the morning, um, do it all over again. And so uh, a lot of, of a lack of sleep for sure. And, and really draining. What was driving you to, to finish it and to get your college degree? I was motivated by my daughter. Um, I just wanted her to have uh, everything that, that I felt that she deserved. I wanted her to have a good life and I wanted to um, do everything I could to make that possible. And, and I also 
you know, my world had been turned upside down by my pregnancy. I had seen the other side of things. I had, you know, been homeless for periods of time. I had gone without eating. You know, I had experienced all of these really tough things, just gotten a taste of that. Um, uh, and so knowing how hard that was, like I never wanted her to experience any of those things. So that drove me. It, it really motivated me each and every day to make sure that, um, that I could get that degree and provide for her in the way that she needed me to. You mentioned writing being an outlet for you. Uh, you majoring in English, you wrote for the high school newspaper. Was writing something that you did during this process? Was there journaling? Was there leveraging the pen to express yourself? Uh, I'm just curious if, if writing yeah. was something that you leveraged. Yeah, I did, um, I did do some journaling. Um, but by the time, and most of that really happened um, when I wasn't in school. By the time I got to William & Mary, I had no time <laughs> to journal. Um, and so a lot of it went into like my paper writing and analyzing, you know, different pieces of literature, which I honestly really enjoyed. I enjoyed the reading and I enjoyed um, the analysis of, of different works. Um, my senior year, I uh, signed up to do an honors thesis and that was in creative writing. And that was really, really cool because it brought me back to the kind of writing that I had loved, you know, growing up. Um, and so I was able to do that and it was a huge undertaking. It was on top of all of the other classes I was taking. Plus I was student teaching, um, working on my secondary education certi certification, certification, excuse me. And so, um, uh, it was a lot of work, but it was really cool because I got to do uh, this this uh, body of work, create this body of work um, that was a creative writing you know project that I was really excited about. So sophomore junior year, you've got your baby. What are you thinking you're going to do with your life? I mean, you're studying English, but there're not that many jobs for English majors. Um, like, what was your vision for your life post college? Yeah. I was still, I think, I was still interested in journalism. I did an internship. Um, I had really, because of my experiences in high school, I had learned about print journalism, but I was also really interested in other aspects of journalism. So I did an internship at a, a local ABC affiliate um, and learned about kind of the broadcast side of things. And that was really interesting. Um, so I think I was, I was committed to moving into the communication sector, whether it was still in journalism or if I would be doing PR. Um, I was learning about all of that. I also did an externship um, around public relations and kind of learning that side of things too. Um, so I, I envisioned that. And then I, I love working with young people and I always have. And so I wanted to also get um, my teaching certification so that uh, I would be one guaranteed a job after college. I was very very concerned about, you know, graduating from college and not having, you know, not being employed because I was a mom and I had daycare expenses and all sorts of things. So I got my, my certification to teach um, middle or high school English on top of those other career interests, just so I could cover all my bases. So we're going to, we're going to continue on your story, but one of the things that I'm interested in and, and curious about is a lot of mothers probably don't go to college also because of debt. They don't want mm -hmm. to take on that debt. Um, what was your situation in regard to taking on debt and, 
in regard to staying in college versus dropping out and, and just going and getting a job that can pay the bills. How did you think about all that and, and just walk us through that decision-making process? Yeah. I mean, I took out loans um, to go to college and um, I really felt like even though it was scary to take out loans, I, I knew that it was going to be um, the best thing for me in the long term to have a college degree and I would be in a different financial situation with a college degree. Um, I should mention that, you know, we talk about this national student debt crisis and um, Black uh, student parents have the highest amounts of student debt than any other student group. Um, so when we're talking about this crisis, it's disproportionately impacting Black mothers and fathers who are trying to put themselves through college. So it's a huge issue and a huge concern. One thing that I do talk about in the book is just the cost of college, how much it has gone up since I was in school. And, and there's a very real question of whether or not I would have been able to do what I did with today's costs being what they are. So I think it would be good to go into what your organization does because you're giving us an idea that you are pretty knowledgeable on this subject, uh, more so than just somebody who then went on and, you know, became a writer and, and sort of <laughs> went on. So, so walk us through how Generation Hope was founded, started, why you did it, what y'all do. And then I think we'll be able to link it back to, to your story as well. Yeah. So uh, I graduated from college. I moved up to the DC metro area and I had this tremendous sense of wanting to give back. I had you know, made it through William & Mary. I graduated in four years. I graduated with high honors, just had this really transformative experience there. And, and Nicole, sorry, how? How did you do that? Um, how did I graduate? You said four years, honors, transformative experience. That's not where I think most people would have thought that story would go. How did, you, <laughs> right. how did, how did you do that? Like what happened? Yeah. Um, you know, I really like ate, breathed and slept college and, and just being a mom. So um, I, I, there, I was obsessed with getting my college degree and it was all that I could like think about and do um, for those four years. And, and I was dealing with a lot. I left my daughter's father, father, my, um, the summer of my freshman year. Um, I moved into a family housing apartment on campus, um, that wasn't intended for students like me because the assumption that was that there wouldn't be a student like me at William and Mary. Um, and so there were a lot of, it was a lot of late nights, a lot of um, wondering how I was gonna connect the dots and pay the bills, a lot of sacrifice. Um, I didn't have the same college experience as my peers. I wasn't able to you know, join a sorority or um, you know, go to all the extracurricular activities or um, I did get to do, have some social kind of experiences, but not at all, you know, what, um, what my peers were able to do. Everything was about going to school and, um, and taking care of my daughter. So to summarize, it was mission driven. It was driven by, I need to give my daughter a great life. And mm -hmm. in order to give my daughter a great life, I'm going to give myself a better chance at doing that if I can get this degree and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this degree as quickly as possible. And so that I can go and, and start earning the amount 
of money that I'm going to need to take care of her. And you use the word obsessed. You were obsessed with the idea of finishing what you started and doing whatever it took to make sure that you weren't just surviving, but you were also thriving in your, in your academics. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That's all accurate. And what I also should mention is I wasn't working. Um, I was uh, able to barely get by with loans um, and grants to support my daughter and I. I think had I been working, which is what the majority of undergrad college students are having to do, particularly if you have children, um, it would have taken me longer. It would have been a different experience. But um, but thankfully, I was able to um, kind of subsist with with the loans and the grants to get us through. So you go up to D.C. and what happened when you went up to Washington, D.C.? So got my first job out of college, uh, was working for a major uh, insurance company and um, doing PR for them and, you know, flying on, on a jet meeting with VPs of a billion dollar company. It was very clear to me that my life had been transformed by a college degree as well as my daughter's life. So had, you know, a really good solid job coming out of school. I was also working on my master's degree at George Mason and uh, I wanted to volunteer and get involved with an organization that was dedicated to teen parents and college completion and none existed. And I thought this is crazy uh, because I know the teen pregnancy rates and the poverty rates in this region. Um, and I also knew from my own experience that you know a college degree was life-changing and the generational impacts of a college degree. And so uh, shifted into the nonprofit sector and started working for a bunch of different youth serving organizations, really fell in love with nonprofit work um, without knowing it really gave myself a training ground on effective nonprofit management and took my lived experience and the, um, you know, the kind of skills that I had acquired and started Generation Hope. Um, very humble beginnings. I always tell people in my husband's man cave. Um, and there was no, you know, Bill Gates was not knocking at my door saying, hey, you've got a great idea. Like I cut you a check. Um, so it was very much a ground zero building brick by brick effort. Um, but but the, the focus was uh, how do we help more teen parents get their college degrees? And um, there was a statistic that just fueled my fire um, that less than 2% of teen moms get a degree before age 30. And I thought that's unacceptable and, and there's something we can do about that. And, um, and that's really how Generation Hope was born. So, so we help teen parents, both mothers and fathers get their degrees in the DC metro region. Um, and now we've added a layer of programming where we are also helping their children get ready for kindergarten and elementary school at the same time. Um, and now we're also launching national work to advocate for the needs of parenting college students all across the country. So good on you. And thanks for all the work that you're doing. But I'm trying to figure this thing out, which is here you are, you say you're flying around, you know, talking to billionaires and you're making a good living and you're getting your master's. So why not just stay the course? You're going to be able to provide for your daughter. Mm -hmm. um, like that's why you did all the hard work in the first place. Like why shift over to the nonprofit world, when it seems like in the for-profit world or for-profit, whatever you want to call the <laughs> corporate world, not, <laughs> I guess that that's sort of telling and how maybe some people look at it, but um, what, why, why, why not just stay the path? Why not? Like, I'm always interested in this idea of doing well and doing good. And mm. I think when you do well, you have the opportunity to do good with that wellness that you did. 
when you do good, it's harder to also do well. It's possible. Um, yeah. there are nonprofit leaders that do really well, mm-hmm. no, but it is, it, I think it's a, it's a harder climb, um, to do well and do good in the nonprofit world than it is to do well and do good in the corporate world. Mm-hmm. So why, why are you transitioning? Because it seems like you've got a good thing going. You're, you're starting to make some money. You're, you're moving in the right direction. Like why, why shift? Why change? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think for me, um, I felt this, this kind of calling on my heart as soon as I was walking across that graduation stage to ensure that my story wasn't rare. Um, I felt it in that moment at graduation um, that there was a reason that I had been through everything that I had been through. And, um, and I wasn't quite sure what that meant. I didn't know what that calling quite meant, but I felt it. And so when I graduated and I started working in the private sector and I was, you know, doing really well, there was just something that really felt um, like, I was being called to. And the more I learned about the nonprofit sector, the more I learned about the gaps in services. And also just knowing that when it comes to teen parents, there's still such stigma around this population. And 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 here I was, someone who had really um, overcome those odds and those statistics that I felt that I could have um, a role to play in, in changing the way that we think about um, teen pregnancy, teen parenting, and the way that we support um, young families. It's interesting because when I was doing my research on you for this call, I know we talked about nonprofits and how do you make a sustainable nonprofit. And uh, I I watched a speech that you gave, an acceptance speech, and it was up in New York City. You talked about taking the train up to get the award and you got on the train uh, and the conductor, whoever came over and saw your ticket and said, ma'am, you're supposed to be in first class. And uh, you're like, Oh, I'm not used to being in first class. I'm in the nonprofit world. We don't do first class, right. <laughs> but you, you accepted the invitation and then took your bags and lugged it up and went up to first class. It was a very funny comment, but it was kind of sad in my opinion, because mm. I think it's kind of bullshit to be honest, that our nonprofit leaders don't always take care of themselves. And yeah. I just had this conversation, um, not just with a nonprofit leader, but also with a startup leader. Uh, she was a CEO of a, a growing company. And, and she said, I would fly all over the country and take red eyes and sit coach and, you know, do whatever I had to do to put the money back into our organization. And I think it's a similar line of thinking, which is, Hey, we need to put all of our money back into our people. And while I understand that thinking, I think often it's short-sighted because the CEO started to realize, gosh, if I don't take care of myself, I'm not going to be able to take care of my people at all. And I think one of the big misconceptions we make in the nonprofit world is that you're not supposed to make a good living. You're not supposed to take care of yourself. And it, it, it should be the complete opposite. Like if you create an amazing organization and you fundraise and you bring in a ton of money, then and you're the CEO, you need to take care of yourself. Like that's, you did the work. It's no different than a salesperson who goes out and brings in a ton of money for their business. Like, and, and so I do think that there's a misconception there. So I would love to hear from you as far as 
what you learned and what changed as you started to run your own organization. And now you're the face. And now while maybe the pay is different and the lifestyle is different, you're having to build this thing from scratch. What have you learned about running a nonprofit? Um, what are the mistakes along the way? What are the things that you're excited about? I uh, would love to just riff on what it's like to run an organization. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I think about that story often because that really was the first time I ever flew first class anywhere. <laughs> so was just, uh, my assumption was not to go to first class. And so it was, was actually like a, a, such a cool experience. Um, it's an addictive problem. It's like, once you go there, it's like yeah, you go back I <laughs> talked about how it was amazing when I got there. I'm like, Oh my gosh, like this is what I've been missing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think to your point, um, I think this is something this is something in philanthropy and in the nonprofit sector that needs to change um, around investing in people and investing in leaders in particular of nonprofits. You know, um, the same skills that you need in the private sector, um, you need in the nonprofit sector to grow an organization, particularly as a founder. Um, but even if you come into an existing organization and you're running it and taking it to the next level, um, you have to have some of those same skills and that business acumen and, and that forward thinking um, that, that really is valued and invested in in the private sector, in the nonprofit sector, it's not. Um, and I, I still have people sometimes when I tell them I run a nonprofit, they're like, oh, it's a hobby? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no. <laughs> This is my job. And so I think the perceptions that people have about the nonprofit sector overall, that that it's that it really just not having a full understanding of, of that it is, you know, you're running organizations, you're managing people, um, you're not working with products uh, in the same way that you are in the private sector, but you're really pushing for change and in way in a way it's even more difficult because it's not this tangible thing that people can always kind of um, hold or purchase that kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're working with behaviors and, um, and real challenges that are often systemic. Um, and so I think there, there's, there's a lot of work to do in terms of that scarcity mindset that is pervasive and that is perpetuated in the nonprofit sector. Um, so I really appreciate that. Um, my first four years of running Generation Hope, I didn't draw a salary. Um, the first grant that we got, I intentionally used it to pay my program person because I really wanted to make sure that our scholars always had someone they could go to. They would, you know, there would never be a, a time where they tried to get help and our program person couldn't be reached because they were working another job. Um, so I intentionally paid our program um, folks first and then myself um, and thankfully was able to bring in some real people and champions and board members who said that's not sustainable <laughs> and we need to make sure that you draw a salary and um, and so uh, in 2014 I was able to, to start doing that and and that was really really important on many many levels um, so I think the first you know phase of the organization was just um, if you build it, they will come, you know, from field of dreams. And, and uh, it's this chicken and the egg where you can't, um, you're not gonna get big grants if you don't have anything to show to funders in terms of what you're doing. So we had to really um, get a lot of stuff donated. We had to rely on our board members to help write those very first checks to the organization. 
um, our first year, we were serving seven moms um, who were attending uh, different colleges around the DC metro area. And then we grew, you know, the next year to 13 and then the next year to 20 something. So um, it was very much, as I said, kind of laying the bricks of, of the programming and really proving that this is something that should be invested in. You know, today is, is different. So it's a lot different. It's um, obviously we're still having to make the case to funders and donors that this is worth investing in. But, um, you know, we have 10 years of incredible impact um, under our belts that we're able to share with people. Um, you know, we have a higher uh, graduation rate than the national average for all college students. Our, our scholars are graduating at eight times the rate of single mothers nationwide. So the proof is in the pudding, if you will. And I think that um, puts us in a very different place in terms of making the case. Before we started recording today, I said, is there anything you want me to lean into? And you said, yeah, I really like to talk about, I don't know if like's the right word, but I'm passionate about talking about race mm -hmm. uh, and the role that it plays at Generation Hope. For those that are listening, because they can't see you, you went to, a, you said, a predominantly white college at William & Mary. Yeah. Uh, Nicole is a person of color. Yeah. So um, I just think that that's important to say because they can only hear your voice. <laughs> And um, what a beautiful world that is. <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> I'm watching this Netflix show, Bridgerton. Are you watching Bridgerton? I've heard of it, but because I have little ones, I've been told to wait until they go to bed to watch. So <laughs> There are definitely uh, after the kids go to bed. That's, that's an after the kids go to bed show. But in Bridgerton race, we, we, can, we can rap about it at another time. Okay. It's just kind of interesting how race plays or doesn't play a role at different times. It just makes you really think about the stupidity of racism um, and how our society is built on it in such ridiculously profound ways. Um, but let's go back to you. I, I could go on and on, but uh, race, uh, what do you, how does race play a role in, in what you see, what you observe, the work that you do? Um, let's just riff on that for a little bit. Yeah, um, and I think this actually fits well with your last question, just in terms of my maturation as, as a leader in this sector. I think when I first started Generation Hope, I wasn't as aware um, of the systemic challenges that that the folks that I serve are up against. Um, you know, I uh, my mother is white, my father's black. I was um, raised in a household where we we leaned into conversations about race. I remember. Um, my dad sitting me down all the time to watch uh, Eyes on the Prize, the, the PBS kind of series on race and the civil rights movement. Um, so I was raised with a real um, uh, understanding of uh, challenges in terms of, you know, historical challenges for particularly for um, for the black community. Um, but I really hadn't yet made the connection between those challenges and what, what happens every day um, for um, communities of color that are trying to um, experience economic mobility. And that uh, awareness has really um, happened for me over the past several years, um, just really also be, you know, I'm now the mother of four, um, you know, just experiencing um, the challenges that we face as a country through the eyes of my children, um, and also really uh, coming to understand the trends that our families at Generation Hope, uh, you know, are, are up against and the things that they're experiencing. So 90% of the students that we serve are students of color. Um, and, uh, you know, really thinking about 
um, the disparities when it comes to our K through 12, our early ed systems around how we set students up for success, um, looking at college affordability um, and uh, the racial wealth gap that, uh, that we know exists in our country and is, is worsening. Um, thinking about uh, college completion rates and um, knowing that uh, they're, you know, students of color are up against many more challenges when it comes to not just college affordability and access, but actually making it to the graduation stage. Um, so all of these things have really become um, uh, ingrained in kind of who we are and what we do at Generation Hopes, that not only are we working really hard every day on our direct service work with our scholars, but you know, how do we educate people about the systemic and historical issues um, that really make it difficult for young parents to, to make it to the graduation stage. So you'll have worked with over 200 students, which is, which is remarkable, especially when you talked about, we started off with this amount and then we moved to this amount. It's, it's just remarkable, the lives that you've touched. And then you were quick to point out that they are graduating. <laughs> like yes. at, at a clip, <laughs> that a clip is that it, they're at a clip really impressive. But I, I, I am going to go back to this thought and idea of where we are as a society. And I'm going to mm -hmm. zoom out. And it's interesting because there are conversations now that are around, don't go to college, go get, go to a trade school, go get a job. Don't put yourself in debt. Don't put yourself behind the eight ball. You even mentioned in this conversation that people of color uh, have more debt than, than anyone else. So why are you so passionate about helping them complete the degree and potentially taking on more debt or whatever it might be? Why is this something that's, that's worth fighting for? Yeah, um, so that's absolutely a, a conversation that ha is happening and has been happening. There's a couple things that I would point out. I think we often say that when it comes to low-income students and students of color, like why, why are we pushing them to go to college? They could go and learn a trade. We don't say that to well-off <laughs> students. You know, We don't say that to the people who can afford college. Um, so there's a whole lot of bias that's wrapped up in that in terms of who deserves to be in a college classroom and who doesn't. Um, the second thing I'll say is that people often don't, um, don't recognize that you can learn a trade at a community college. Like community college, um, it is an opportunity for you to um, get an associate's degree, get um, a certificate, um, you know, learn a trade, all sorts of things. We've supported students who come through our program who are learning um, a trade and, and at the same time earning an, an associate's degree. Um, and, and then I would also say that I think, um, you know, we, the, the importance of helping uh, young people, particularly community, communities of color, get to a college degree because of the ROI that we know exists there. Um, it is still uh, economically advantageous for you as an individual to go to college. We know that our scholars will make uh, about a, a million dollars more over the course of their lifetime because of a college degree. So there is absolutely no doubt that um, the earning power that comes with a college degree is real and will help uh, folks move out of poverty and get into a better place financially. I'm so, I get fired up talking about this and I've talked about it on this podcast with many different people because a lot of people go through college and they're like, I didn't learn anything. I learned how to drink. 
or I learned how to talk to girls or talk to boys, or I learned how to cheer for the football team. And, and so they leave and they say, well, that was a waste. And it's not worth getting in debt over that. But I agree with you. If you look at poverty and you look at the history of this country, an education is still the best way for you to come out of that. And I, I think I'm, I'm concerned that the messaging that we have today where, yes, somebody can become an entrepreneur at 18 and learn how to code and learn how to do this remarkable stuff. Yes, the Internet is this incredible place. But I still believe that a formal education is, is the best route for many, not for all. And you're not saying that either, but for oh, many yeah. people, it's still the best route. And I'm concerned that we're, we're just saying, well, it's, it's not a valuable piece of paper because I didn't learn anything, but you had the piece of paper. So you don't know what it's like to not have that piece of right. paper. And, and I still think education, if you can go to a great school, you can get good grades you can apply for jobs. And I think that's only actually going to increase as companies are valuing diversity more and more and more. So I really get concerned when I hear people devalue college and I understand where they're coming from. Look, colleges do need to think about putting people into debt and do need to think about ways to add value to their students. But two things can be true at once. And we don't need to say it's not valuable in order to say that we need to reform it and we need to change it. Um, so I, I just want to give you a massive shout out because I think you are working with a niche of people, but if you expand it out and go broader, I would imagine that mentoring, I would imagine that helping and assisting and all of the work and educating is needed in all, a bunch of different segments of this country. Um, so, so thank you for that. Um, as far as mentoring goes, because I know that's a big piece of why you all are successful, what goes into that and what makes a great mentor and what goes makes a great mentee and what have you learned along the way as far as mentorship goes? Yeah, um, so mentoring is a huge part of our programming. Um, we, particularly for a population that is often stigmatized and, and kind of ostracized because of their pregnancies, many of our scholars have fragile relationships with the adults in their lives or, um, or you know, they may have, um, you know, a parent that's incarcerated or grown up in the foster care system. So it's really important and impactful to have an adult in your life who is there not to judge you, but to encourage you and who um, is really a cheerleader to say, like, you can do this. Um, so our, our mentors are really amazing and wonderful and huge uh, components of the, the services that we provide. Um, we're really thankful for them. I think what we've learned in doing this work, I, I was just telling someone the other day in terms of what makes a good mentor, um, no one wants a perfect mentor. <laughs> no one wants someone who, um, has always gotten it right, um, who has all the right answers, who you know um, can tell you exactly how to live your life. Um, none of us want that. We want someone who can share their missteps. We want someone who can share their, um, their imperfections, who can talk about experiences that um, didn't go the way that they wanted them to go. That's where we learn, that's where we connect, that's where we identify. Um, so that's something that, you know, we really encourage transparency in our mentors. 
And then also, um, it sounds really cliche, but wanting people who have a big heart and who um, are going to reserve judgment um, and really have empathy is really important because we do have, you know, you may have be working with a student in our program who has to drop a class because uh, they are in a domestic violence situation and and they have to, you know, relocate unexpectedly. Um, in that case, we need people who are going to really be good listeners, who are going to say, okay, let's figure this out together, as opposed to, you know, why would you drop that class and, you know, getting into all of that. So empathy, a big heart, and really being transparent about your own kind of journey is really important. That is beautiful. I just wrote, find an imperfect mentor. Yeah. And I think a lot of us look for perfect mentors and, but if they're not willing to have the vulnerability and courage to share what their missteps are, what are you really going to learn? You're, Cause you're probably not going to do it exactly like they did it. Um, but you could learn what they screwed up on and make yeah. sure you don't do that. That's, <laughs> that's a really cool way to look at it, which I never really thought of. I think I'd always focused on finding a great mentor, find someone who's a superstar who you aspire to be like, and that can be the, that, those can be true and also someone that's not going to sugarcoat it. It's going to give it to you straight and, and going to acknowledge their missteps. Someone actually called me today to ask about podcasting and I gave them like my three mistakes that I made yeah. when I started. And I think that is, that's huge. And so I, I think that's, that's a really, really important piece. There's something that I want to hit on here and it, it sort of goes back to the beginning of our conversation around identity. And so the book is called Pregnant Girl, that being part of your identity when you're in it. And then you also talked about race and being mixed. And so I'm curious for you, as you sit in the seat that you're sitting in today, how do you see yourself? Uh, you, you've been the pregnant girl. You've been the, you know, a mixed because people that are mixed often talk about not sure being unsure of who they fit in with and, and who they ride with and, and, you know, are they to this or are they to that? And, and they're sort of playing um, sort of that code switching that, that can happen. Um, so as you think about your identity, how do you think about it for yourself? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'll start with race. Um, I have always taught, you know, owned being both black and white, my mom being white, my dad being black. I was in a, a, a race equity training um, a couple years ago, and we were talking about that very question, like, what is your identity, your, your racial identity? And um, I remember the trainer saying to me, the question is less about, um, it, it's more about how does the world experience you? And that was really interesting for me because um, there's never been a time where someone thought I was white. <laughs> like, that has never happened. I've never entered a room and someone was like, oh, I had no idea that you were, you know, I thought you were white. Um, it's really the opposite where um, people experience me as a black woman. And if, if, you know, in the conversation I share that my mother's white, then it's more of like, wow, I had no idea that kind of thing. So um, I very, you know, I, move through the world as a black woman. I, that's the way that the world kind of experiences me. Um, and uh, so that has been, and, and that's something that I embrace. I, you know, I, I, I love that. Um, and, you know, my, my husband is black, my children are black and, and you know, so it, it's very much something I identify with. Um, I think as a, in terms of my other identities, motherhood is huge for me. Um, 
you know, just being um, there for my kids and showing up for them every day and, um, and making sure they have what they need and wanting to be um, an encourager to them. Um, my oldest daughter is uh, a senior. She's about to graduate from college, which is, which is unreal. <laughs> um, so, you know, it was kind of come full circle in terms of her coming to college with me. And now she's about to go out into the world with her degree. Um, and then we have an 11 year old, a, a four year old and a two year old. And so my hands are always full <laughs> in some way throughout the day. Um, and then, you know, I take it very seriously to be a wife and, and to, um, my husband and I um, really are a great team. And I think just trying to be supportive of one another. He's also an entrepreneur and, you know, just wanting to to show up for each other and, and celebrate each other. And, and also, you know, running an organization, I take my role as, as CEO very seriously in the sense that I know that my biggest job is to, is to make it easier for my team to do their job. And so, um, uh, you know, I really embrace that role as well. It's amazing. Um, in my work, where I work with executives, and I do executive coaching. We often talk about how others perceive them is essential. And it's important to be aware of how others perceive us. And as you were talking about race and your identity, that you're not going to get to choose whether you're talking about white mom or black dad, they're going to see you as a person of color. As soon as you enter the room, that's, there is a lens with which they're going to notice you. And where they go from that is dependent on their own experiences and their own thinking. But leadership is in some ways similar in the sense that when you enter a room as the CEO, they're going to view you a certain way as well. And it's important to be aware of how you show up for mm -hmm. them reputationally. And then to learn more about how you can manage your relationship with them. And I've never really thought about it from a race and a leadership standpoint. In both cases, you have to be hyper aware of the room and be aware and read the room, which is exhausting and takes energy to do. But it's necessary mm -hmm. because whether it's unconscious or conscious or um, intentional or unintentional, you are going to be evaluated. You're going to be judged in a different way, in a different lens. A key difference here is one you're choosing to step into and the other you're not, um, but both require you to be highly aware and attuned to your impact on the rest of the people in the room. Mm -hmm. And so as you were talking, I, I couldn't help but think about, okay, as a CEO, I think when we last chatted, you had 14 full-time employees, I think another part-time employee. I mean, these are 15 people that your decisions, the way you show up, how you handle things impacts their life. And so that was just an interesting dynamic that you shared. I see your head nodding. So do you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I actually talk about in the book also, um, you know, bringing those two things together, being a, a black female CEO of a nonprofit organization, um, uh, we know that leaders of color who are running nonprofit organizations, they are not um, able to fundraise in the same way that white nonprofit leaders are. Um, Black female uh, leaders working in this sector, um, they're able to receive about less than 1% of all giving in this country. Um, so just knowing when I show up in a room um, that, you know, that I have a different experience as a Black female CEO um, in terms of fundraising and garnering resources and garnering support. Um, I also really think a lot about 
um, being a nonprofit CEO that has a lived experience to bring to the table. Um, I think we need more of that in this sector as we're thinking about, you know, what needs to change. Um, there's, there's a lot of talk right now, given this national racial reckoning across the country about, um, you know, uh, the disparities that exist and in the philanthropic and nonprofit sector, you know, the, that is definitely there's disparities that exist across the board. How are we putting resources into the hands of the communities most impacted um, by the challenges that we're trying to solve and making sure that we're um, allowing people to come around the table who have the lived experience um, to be power brokers and to make decisions and to receive the funding that they need to create authentic solutions. So there's a lot of work that we have to do there. So Nicole, when we chat on the phone, I could tell within a few minutes that you're a superstar. And <laughs> so, so I, I'm serious. And look, I'm not the only one. You're, you've been a CNN hero. You've gotten recognitions and awards. So this isn't just a me thing. Here's what I'm curious about though. Here you are, you're, you, have, you have your baby. Uh, you're at an amazing university like William & Mary. You graduate in four years and honors. You go off, you get a big job, then you start your own company. You start. So, so here's your journey. How do you continue to lean into your genius and your gifts and your calling while not intimidating people and while, while fitting in and, and connecting with them? Because I'm sure some of the 200 plus people you serve look at you and say, I can't get there. I'm not her. She's, she's like superwoman. Right. Um, and, and I find this to be a massive challenge for a lot of women in business who are blazing a trail and it's harder for them or people of color in business who are blazing a trail. It's like, how do I still step into standing out in my gifts and my genius while not intimidating people along the way or, um, not being, um, almost reachable or attainable, like not, not being seen as otherworldly. Mm. Um, how do you, how do you toggle that? How do you mix that? Because I'm sure it's feedback that you've received along your journey is like, well, I can't be you. Like, I, I don't, I can't do that. Or uh, a lot of apostrophe T's like, I can't, I won't like those types of words come up. So how do you navigate that? How do you manage it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think for me, it's probably a bunch of different things. Um, one, I really, it's so important to me that I stay connected to um, our students, to our staff, um, so that they see me as, as what I am, which is just a human being, right? Like, so um, I, take my, I take my staff out to coffee um, all the time and, and I'm listening to them and tell them I'm an open book and they can pick my brain or we can just talk about our favorite foods. Um, I, um, uh, you know, um, with our students, I'm often, you know, at a lot of our trainings, they'll find me sitting down, you know, eating lunch with them and chatting and talking. I bring my kids who, you know, anytime you see a parent trying to wrangle their kids, you automatically understand that they are not, they have no superhuman powers. Um, you know, I talk about the challenges of raising my kids. Um, you know, the other day, my two-year-old disappeared upstairs for five minutes and got into a can of WD-40. And I told like all my staff about it, right? Um, so I think just being, um, just being myself and trying to also find those opportunities to sit down and connect and not, you know, it's not a meeting I'm facilitating. It's not a speech I'm giving. 
Um, and I and I'm just taking the time to to get to know people and also just um, you know uh, not not I don't want to say not taking myself too seriously, but I um, it's really important to me that I have things in my life that keep me grounded. I've worked for people who I feel like um, walked around like superstars, <laughs> and that you know is not motivating. It's not. It doesn't you know make you want to kind of follow behind them. And so whatever I can do, um, and again, I think my kids are great at keeping me grounded. My husband and doing things that I love, cooking and you know just leaning into those things, I think um, are really important. And and not looking at myself other than I just I'm just like everybody else. I've been able to do some extraordinary things. I think, um, you know, you often hear I'm a normal person and God has used me to do extraordinary things. And that's something I, I really believe and, and kind of repeat all the time. Well, you mentioned over this conversation that it, it was a calling for you and you stepped into it. And uh, it's, it's just really inspiring to hear all the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. I want you to use the final minutes we have here to just promote the new book, which is called Pregnant Girl, which comes out May 9th, I believe, which yes. is Mo- Mother's Day, which hopefully I remember and uh, <laughs> trouble uh, with, and then also Generation Hope. So if people want to learn more, if they want to pre-order the book, if they want to make a donation to Generation Hope, um, where can they go about doing those things? Yeah, so the book is available now for pre-sales and pre-orders. So would love um, for folks to do that. You can go to any anywhere um, online retailers uh, and your independent bookstores um, should all have it. Um, and uh, we've been directing people to Bookshop, uh, which is kind of the Amazon of independent bookstores. You can find it there. Um, so yeah, would love for people to do that. Um, for Generation Hope, our website is supportgenerationhope.org. Um, you can find us on social media uh, at Support Gen Hope on Twitter and Instagram and support Generation Hope on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at Nicole Lynn Lewis. Um, and we're really active and love to continue the conversation on social media. But yeah, would love to have uh, folks um, order uh, pre-order Pregnant Girl. And I'm really excited to hear what people think of it. So would love people to follow up. And I know I follow Nicole on Twitter. So give her a follow there. I'm at Brian Levinson, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. Nicole, looking forward to reading the book, getting my hands on it, learning a little bit more about your story. And, and thanks for being you and all the important work that you do. And, and best of luck with the book and, and keep doing what you're doing. It's, re- it's really inspiring, as I said earlier. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be on. Let's do it again. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. No one wants a perfect mentor. <laughs> no one wants someone who um, has always gotten it right, um, who has all the right answers, who you know um, can tell you exactly how to live your life. Um, none of us want that. We want someone who can share their missteps. We want someone who can share their um, their imperfections, who can talk about experiences that um, didn't go the way that they wanted them to go. That's where we learn. That's where we connect. That's where we identify. Um, so that's something that, you know, we really encourage transparency in our mentors.